0: Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton along with Dr. Brian Goff. Hello, Brian. Hi, Sheila. And Dr. Jenna Lejeune. Hello. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives, and I'm so happy that I actually decided to speak to someone on an airplane because I had probably one of the most intriguing conversations that I've ever had with Dan Schilling. He spent more than 30 years in the military, primarily as a combat controller and special tactics officer. And our conversation about the military, mental health... His incredible career, both as a special ops guy and as a person who cares deeply about personal development, was one of the most fascinating I've ever had, and that's why he's here today. Hello, Dan.
1: Hello, Sheila. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, I I think that it's probably pretty um, odd for people to say, yeah, I talked to a special ops guy. Like, how many of them are there in the country?
1: It's a, a fraction of the military in single digits. It escapes me at the moment what that statistic is, but it is very, very small 2%, maybe 3%, something like that. Um, and so it's a sliver.
0: And how do you guys get selected, trained, um, cold from a general population of people who are interested in joining the military?
1: It's a self selection. People seek this out, men and women. It's open to, to both genders. And, uh, you know, changes are part of what makes fair go around and that's good and bad and so it tends to attract people who are looking to either push their boundaries or want to try something different or they're escaping something it's a common thing as well mm-hmm. and so but i think the appeal is at least in my instance was the opportunity to push yourself beyond what you thought you were even capable of can i be in the top 1% of an already 1% selection of the population, yeah, can I do that?
0: You uh, mentioned on the plane that you were kind of escaping a difficult past of your own. What led you to that role?
1: Well, it, it, for me, that was actually this book, and it goes back on 30 years of doing special operations across, the, I think it's like 26, 27 countries, not as many as some people, but more than others. And You know, across three decades, there's a lot of foreign policy and a lot of different things that we've done this country over that period. started in the 80s into the 90s, and then the war came, which is the longest-running war in American history. I mean, it's happening tonight. While we're sitting here having this conversation, there's men and women in places like Yemen, Libya, Afghanistan, obviously, that are doing things that are very, very difficult to do. And those, to go back to your question, those things leave scars, like any experience you have in life, if it is a challenge, there are going to be things that stay with you forever. And scar tissue may cover over, but it's always resonant.
0: Yeah, I uh, was just so struck by the most recent report. And and in fact, there is a conference this month in Atlanta to deal with the increase in the suicide rate. The military has done a really good job of trying to implement suicide prevention techniques in the last two years. And still, the suicide rate is now 22 veterans per day. And Dan, you had some really interesting background as to why you think that's occurring.
1: Well, I think, well, so. To actually address something that you brought up, which is the military's efforts to stem this tide, which is a difficult thing to do. You, anyone who lives in who's Danish knows, understands it's hard to keep back the sea. And this is a similar thing. I would say and the Air Force itself has taken extreme measures in the recent uh, weeks to address this. They actually did a sh- shutdown of the Air Force, Air Force-wide, to address this issue. And I gave a speech yesterday uh, at the Portland Air Base and it was one of the questions that came up is you know do you think we're doing a good job of this and the challenge of course is and you know this better than almost anybody that it there's no blanket you can apply there's no leadership solution that you can apply to this it's an individual thing you have to reach out touch that person on the shoulder and say mm-hmm. i think you're not okay can i talk to you and you know it's touched me like most people in the military i knew i've known seven guys very very well who Killed themselves, including my best friend, mm-hmm. and and you and but you all you all know this. And mm-hmm. sometimes you can see it coming, and you can't stop it. And sometimes you never saw it coming. And I think back to what your original question was: the challenge that happens to people in the military is you subordinate yourself to something much bigger than who you are as an individual. Mm-hmm. You dedicate sweat and blood, and then sometimes your life, which is. The, focus of the book that I'm on book tour with and when you come back whether you get out of the military or you're still in there's a identity loss and it's very profound and it's certainly on the individual it's to me personally when I come back from combat but it's very similar to getting a divorce or losing a spouse in the sense that how it affects me personally feels absolute and i mean that term in a sense that I don't know what to do, and I am so lost, I might decide I should end this because there's nothing for me.
0: Brian, I want to bring you in on this because I think that the parallels that are running through the military right now and the points that Dan brings up are very much uh, like what's happening in middle-aged male suicide, where there is increases, we see the increases after divorce, economic loss, or loss of status, meaning loss of a job or loss of, you know, whatever it was that kind of buoyed them up throughout their lives. How do you deal with people to let them know that transitions can be suffered through, but that we have to actually be okay with suffering in the beginning?
2: It's a really good question. The business of you have to be okay with suffering in the beginning seems... um, uh, an, uh, a hugely important first step. Um, that these, you know, I'm thinking about the, the, some of the stuff that people are called to do in the military are extraordinary things that are um, out, so outside of the norm of a of a typical kind of human experience that um, it's going to be very very upsetting and 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 traumatic even. And the reaction to that as being something that sends you sideways. B- to me, doesn't seem pathological. That seems like a normal reaction to an extraordinarily not normal event. Right. Um, and the shift of, you know, if I have support, I love the way you said that, you know, subordinated yourself to a cause or a mission or the colors or the objective. And when that mission or objective is complete um, or that I transition out of the military, um, i what am I what am I here for? What am I marching towards? What are my sort of internal orders in a in a way? I don't know if that's a decent way to put that.
1: No, it does because it's actually it's what am I? You can even stop the sentence right, right. there. period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what am yeah. I and who am I? And it's not just the military, although it's the perfect. Example, because it's so easy to understand the extreme of experience and trauma that you're exposed to, and the commitment level is so high that this becomes my identity, which goes back to your question or your observation, Sheila, yeah. which is, it's middle-aged men are more susceptible because they identify what I do for a living with who mm-hmm. I am, That's and right. when that stops, it it can be catastrophic. One of the other, so I live up in the mountains, like 8,500 feet, and we get 60 feet of snow a year, and a very dear friend of mine does the avalanche control. For this, it's a very high-risk, high-tempo, high-thrill job. Throwing bombs on a mountain to start avalanches—that's pretty cool. But the trauma that comes with that, because you lose people, you lose people under you, and this, this individual has experienced the same thing. Never served a day in the military, but the experiences are the same, and victims mm-hmm. of trauma are the same as well, too. That's mm-hmm. a different victimization identity. Now I, I, be, I take on this identity unwillingly because it's happened to me, but yeah. I think it's just back to, well, who am I? And well, if you don't know, it's bad.
3: Yeah, and I guess one thing I'd like to piggyback on about what you said, Brian, was you know this idea that you have to be okay with suffering in the beginning. Uh, absolutely, and I think that goes beyond the individual. You know, We often just focus on what's happening with the individual that kind of led to the suicide, but if we're seeing increasing rates in suicide in particular communities, in particular groups of people, we also have to look at what's going on in that culture, what's going on in the community that we could influence. And I think the idea of, as a community, we also have to look at what messages we're giving about whether or not it's okay to suffer. And we as a community, or the military as a community, or you know, men as a community, whatever little mm-hmm. community you're yeah. in, also having a, a, a message that it's okay for us to be with you as you are suffering as well, not just, oh, you're having a hard time, you better go out there and like figure it out and deal with it on your own kind of thing. Right.
0: Well, it's also, I, I want to ask you about that, Ken, because it does run counter to masculinity, bravery, c- courageousness, everything that's required to do the job you have to do in the military is opposite of what it takes to heal from suicidal mm-hmm. ideation. It's vulnerability. It's the willingness to ask for help. It is, the, it is honestly at the point of saying, um, I need assistance. It's so it's like, how do you deal with those competing interests when you're dealing with a health crisis that's as serious as the one they have in the military right now?
1: Well, it comes back to the individual, and it goes back to what you made the observation of. Mm-hmm. Suffering is inevitable. That's Buddhist. That's the essence of Buddhism and how you manage it is Mm -hmm. the resolution of Buddhism. I mentioned that because one, I liked your observation and second, that's what saved my life. Mm. Having killed people for a job, killing people is a net negative. There's no upside as an individual to killing another individual, even when it's justified. And I don't think I killed anybody that I, I, I didn't need to kill. It's hard to say because of the kind of job I had, you kill a lot of people, it's hard to sort them out. You have to live with that and that suffering is very very real but the bottom line is you the suffering is it's it's part of life there is no escape from that and what saved me from my own problems and ptsd is an overused term but that's what it is for me i call it shell shock and maybe it's because i grew up under world war ii veterans and that's a term from that war right but i have my own shell shock and buddhism is what allowed me to pull myself up and it's back to what mm-hmm. you, you were saying. It's like as a collective, I yeah. found these other people that had a philosophy and an architecture that I could understand. Yeah, nothing against religion. That's just not how I could find mm-hmm. sense and resolution that helped me to survive. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I'd be dead. I should be dead anyway. But many times, for many reasons.
2: But mm-hmm. I, how how does that get resolved? That. You know, you had said one of the reasons that people get into special ops or even, I suppose, military in general or whatever it might be is uh, I want to see if I can push myself beyond what I'm capable of. Because there's got to be a place in there where you're like, uncle, and then, no, I will continue. Or I want to quit, but I'm not going to. Or this is painful or I'm freezing cold or whatever, but I will press on. And somebody says, you all right? And it's like, yeah, leave me alone. I'm fine. You know, like, press on. Um, that psychologically it seems like people can – the danger, it seems at least in my eyes, the danger might be to then have people say, dude, are you all right? That you extend that same like, I'm fine, I'm fine. I could ignore all the messages in me that say, no, you're not okay. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. In fact, one of the things we would do to instill that commitment to do whatever you have to do under duress or on a battlefield in in mm-hmm. peak conditions is we take your oxygen. There is nothing more fundamentally physiologically demanding than the need for air. You go without food, go without sleep, go without water. When I take your air and I put you underwater, if you can push yourself to the point that you will push past consciousness and overcome the the absolute right survival instinct and you can suppress that, since I can't actually shoot you in training – this is the next best thing. It's what kind of the things that we do. And, but the, what that instills is this self-fulfilling, self-reliance. And I don't ask for help. And, and, and the special ops community is the worst at this. And I was also exhibit a for this because yeah, I'm good. I got it. Right. That's a problem. I
2: was watching this documentary about, uh, in preparation for this, uh, one of the most recent documentaries on, on Black Hawk down. And, you know, they're talking about being in the UN vehicles because there's the only vehicles available and the bullets are pinging off of it right. and RPGs. And and then they stop and it's like, get out. And my brain is like, fuck, no. <laughs> I'm not getting they, out. They <laughs> it seems like a terrible <laughs> idea, right? But it's like, yeah, okay, get out. Get out. And now the bullets are going to ping off what?
0: what? What was that experience like? Please give us the detail of what's happening, what's Brian well, describing. Well, so, I mean, what... What
2: Brian's talking about
1: is it's a seminal gunfight in American history. It's one of the most extreme examples of an underdog American force, which almost never happens, which is why it is still resonant. Um, 200 guys in a city of a million people, all of whom were armed and had been in civil war for a couple of years. And we're there to pick up one of their leaders in the middle of the day, from the middle of their stronghold in a city of a million people. That's pretty audacious. And I'm very proud of that. In fact, most people now that's Black Hawk Down. That's what that is. And for me... You know, publicly it was shaped as a failure, which is 100% not true. We went out that day to collect these guys under those conditions, and mm-hmm. we did that. We collected them. It cost us 18 men. We killed maybe 1,000, 1,500 people. That's wow. a huge number. And so for me, you know, the experience of that is it's it's frustration, it's elation, it's fear, it's anger. It's anger. That's extreme combat. And it was very Hollywood in its reality. I mean, Mm -hmm. things are blowing up all around you. I was just waiting for my turn to die because everybody else was getting shot. And that's just what happened. Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm very actively involved in what is happening here. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But ultimately, one of the things you come to realize over the long haul, if you experience enough things like gunfights, is you don't have control. Mm -hmm. It's an illusion. Mm -hmm. And the best you can do is shape what you think you can do to affect this outcome and it goes back to a mm-hmm. collective The one of the reasons we do that type of training and it's sort of off subject of you know mental health this way but it's resiliency which does have yeah. mental health ad- advantage mm-hmm. it's not always weakness like oh, i'm not asking for help some guys can get through this stuff pretty well um mm-hmm. but man it's it's how can we how can i contribute to what we are going to do and it was just a really bad is it day. sort of
2: is it sort of like ignored in the mission and then let's debrief the hell out of it it's ignored during
1: the mission because you have to prioritize what needs doing, right. That's one of the things we're instilling by pushing you past the need for oxygen. Mm-hmm. What do you have to do? I have to swim to the other side of the pool. No matter what, can't get a breath till I do that.
0: But you made a good point yesterday, Ken, about it used to be that armed forces used to, be able to go into combat, and then have many, many months to debrief with their fellow comrades. And now the routine deployment of these people is causing a kind of toxic stress and the inability to actually process what they've seen, done, felt, witnessed.
1: And reintegrate. And it's worse for people who have experienced trauma because one day I'm on a battlefield, and next thing you know I'm in Landstuhl, Germany, and the next day I'm at Walter Reed and my wife is there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, hey, 48 hours ago I was shooting guys in the head. And that's a, that's a very difficult thing to process because it's it's not so much that it's debriefing, which has this formal feel. It's this decompression. Uh-huh. It is this yeah. shared experience. And this is what helped me in Somalia is after the fact, we weren't supposed to have alcohol, but I had a sneaked bottle of gin. And a friend of mine and I would go out and sit on the sandbags and smoke cigars. And this guy is an American hero. Received the Air Force Cross, saved seven guys' lives, and he's one of my best friends. And we would sit on the sandbags at sunset, sneak some illicit gin and smoke a cigar and we would talk about what was happening because half of our force was wounded and now wow. gone. Our hangar that was full of a couple hundred guys was now half full Jeez. and this is all part of that process. Yeah.
3: One of the things you just said there, Dan, that I had never thought about it in this way and you obviously I'm not in the military so you tell me if this matches your experience. It occurred to me that maybe one of the things the military is exceptionally good at is giving people while they're taking away maybe this like need for the individual life like oh my god I have to do anything to preserve my own life they're giving them this reason to live they're giving them this sense of like very intense purpose in this collective and then sort of what happens is they come back and that reason for like, the purpose of what they're doing in this world is gone, but then so too they, they don't have that kind of maybe normal life preservation that those of us who haven't had it drained mm. out of us have. And so maybe that's also part of, part of the problem is that what we need to do is not so much – Keep them alive, but give them back some intense reason to live, some some purpose for them.
1: But you can't actually give that to someone; they have to yes. determine it. Yes, that's. But, Thank you. uh, but yes. your point is yes. valid, and yes. that is: what do you do? Yeah. Two things that happened for me after 31 years of a lot of traumatic experience—you know, I've been shot in helicopter crashes and these sort of things—was, what do I do next?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And and how do I manage my own internal damage? Mm-hmm. Drinking over medication, these are things we were talking about on the plane yesterday. For me, I got into very, very absolutely extreme sports, like base jumping. If you do it, we have a saying, you base jump long enough, it will kill you. There's a lot of appeal in that for someone like me because it's very pure. In the moment, if I'm going to jump off a 460-foot cliff, if I don't do everything right, exactly the right time, exactly the right way, every time, I'm going to die in five seconds. That forces you to be very in the moment, which is also very Buddhist, mm-hmm. and that was my way of helping to work through this stuff.
2: And yeah. it's better than drinking meditate? alcohol. I've yeah. never, I've never jumped off a cliff, but I've rock climbed, and it's you know very you don't simple. really think about no. your deadlines or your laundry when you're clinging
1: to the side of a cliff. No, because what matters is where's my foot going. Yeah. What right. matters is what's my body position as I yeah. push up. And people used to ask me, well, why do you base jump? And I would always say. I don't know, but I can tell you this, as I'm standing on top of a 700 foot cliff and I am about to push off, when I push off that mountain, I can feel it right now. In that moment of freedom and liberation, I know why I base jump. Now it's almost killed me a number of times, but it's something that you do. Now I'm a bit older and wiser, Age and distance from traumatic experiences help. This is why we have to help people. It doesn't matter if you're in the military, or my friend who does avalanche control, right. or EMS here in Portland. Whatever you do, we're here. You know, you, we have to get you to that next point. But ultimately, only you can get there. There is no saving. You know this. I read. I was up till one o'clock reading your book. You cannot save somebody from themselves. Ultimately, you cannot do it. Yeah. It's not possible in my experience
0: your your recent book i i spent so much time yesterday on your uh, website because uh the story of um this man john chapman who received the medal of honor it's posthumously right that's how you say Mm -hmm. that word i always get it wrong um it was so compelling and one of the things that you have on your website is you have this youtube video of the drone footage of John Chapman's battle. And I was thinking about how strange it is to watch something that is a world away, how much it made me feel almost as if I was watching a video game and that there is a way in which we have um, these tools to get close to the suffering, but we're not really ever there. So that it, it provides us this this weird buffering between really understanding the intensity, the grief, the harrowing nature of what you veterans are going through. And I want you to talk a little bit about that. Video games do it. Drone footage does it. Um, All of the things that allow us to think, well, we kind of know what it's like to be in a battle. Is it good for the public to have this this kind of facade between us and how terrible it really is.
1: Well, it breaks down the facade, and it actually goes back to the Second World War. The reason the Second World War ended the way that it did without the complete invasion of Japan and some of these other things that had happened was Americans for the first time and you could extend this to the world, We're seeing what it looked like to have dead people washing up on a beach mm-hmm. to see firebombing and carpet bombing in Dresden and Tokyo. And when you, as a civilian, this, you're three civilians, I'm a military guy, and when you start seeing that, your own population will not allow you to prosecute a war to unconditional surrender because it's too horrific to watch.
2: Yeah.
1: And so you're not even there, and you're like, I don't want to see this. And I, I equate, mm-hmm. I do this with, people All the time, I, I equate combat with sex. Here's why you're before, let's just say all four of us have had sex in our lives,
0: <laughs> Hypothet- let's, hypothetically. Let's
1: say, <laughs> and and but before you had sex, you had this idea in your mind what is it? What's it like? Mm. And it, it sounds like a good idea. People talk about it. There's it's on back in the days, it was magazines or whatever. Now it's on the internet. And what I, I want to be a part of this, and when you finally have that experience. You, all of us know, it's different than what you expected. Combat Mm -hmm. is the same way. Mm -hmm. What you think it's going to be, and young men want to go to combat who are doing this. Man, I wanted to go to war. I wanted to go down, hunt people down who I thought should die and kill them because it was a way of validating myself or pushing myself, and it's an ultimate experience. And there is upside to this, too. Back to what you were saying, Jenna, it's like, it is the ultimate high. It's the ultimate practitioner Mm -hmm. practicing the ultimate gain. Uh, It's a Karmic McCarthy quote from Blood Meridian, I think. And Man, that's, there's upside to that. But as a population, you, don't, you can't know what sex is like till you have it. You can't know what childbirth is like until you do it. You can't know what combat is like until it happens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it's go, that's why I mentioned the Second World War. This is where it started to change warfare. Why do you think in the first Gulf War we stopped without invading Iraq fully? George Bush, whether you're pro or con, doesn't matter, made this decision. We're not going to finish invading this country The population's not going to want to do this. Bill Blackhawk down. Bill Clinton pulled us out of Somalia after we killed a 1,000 people and lost 18 of our comrades and undid everything that we had been working for for two months or three months, however long we'd been there, because politically and publicly it was not popular Popular. because people didn't want to see more. Uh, My friends are being dragged naked dead through the street. That has an impact in America. You were watching it. I was a mile down the street watching this happen on CNN. I knew right where it was happening. I'd been there. Jeez. Yeah, and you want to go back, and you would, you know, then you have this normal human reaction, which is I'm going to go back out there and kill everybody in the street.
0: So, in your own mind, are you are you a fan of more? Are you a fan of letting people be closer to the action, to the horror of what we're going through?
1: I hope that that proximity will help prevent the next world war because. The conditions for the First World War are very similar to what's happening today. Russia was more of a catalyst for the First World War than most people will understand, unless you really know history. It was the mobilization of six million troops that caused this, the Austrian Empire to ask the Germans to mobilize, which caused this many millions of men. And the next thing you know, you have a fight. Wow. Russia is here to do that again because they are failing as a nation and they are trying to destabilize things. What they don't can't calculate is. The miscalculation resident in that can cause the Third World War. And you, as a population, the more attuned you are to the horror of war, the better off you are. Because back to what you said, Brian, it's mm-hmm. about collective suffering. Suffering is part of life. And if we remove it from you entirely, you civilians, yeah, you don't understand and you think, oh, it's sort other thing. Like right now we're talking about it. And like I said, hey, the war's ongoing tonight.
2: Yeah. Right. Well, right. and if yeah, if you're removed from it, it's just moving around chess pieces. And right.
1: after a couple of years, who cares? Because I've seen this footage over and over, and that's what right. happened in Vietnam.
0: So I want you to talk a little bit about what John Chapman did and why he received this Medal of Honor. Um, Dan, it, it occurs to me that he must have had some of the same sort of wiring that you do, a, a super adrenaline seeker. You watch that drone footage of him just charging up that snow killed Mountain and you're like who was this guy and why was he so different than the rest of the people he was with he was a different character I don't
1: so actually I don't think he was that much of a different character what he did faster than anybody else which was driven by circumstance and the way the events unfolded immediately when the team came out of the back of this helicopter and I'll spare you why that was so but John found himself in the position of this is the most immediate threat It's above me. They're getting shot from four directions. Six guys. Not a lot of firepower amongst five SEALs and this combat controller. And he realized, I have to do this. He's not seeking any thrill at all. He's probably scared shitless. And Well, actually, he's probably determined, scared, determined shitless. And (laughs) I've got to go up there. And he literally charges into this machine gun nest and killed these guys the distance from me to you and he got shot in the process and that that courage right there is what qualified him for the medal of honor but really what makes his story so compelling is this the seals under intense enemy fire made the decision to retreat but they never checked John's body because the team leader thought he was dead and he, we know he was not dead so the seals retreated and this guy recovers John Chapman recovers on this mountain finds himself alone he's mortally wounded it's below freezing It's in the dark. It's waiting for sunrise to come up. He's got blood loss. He's got shock. And he is bleeding out. He's going to die. And he finds himself alone, and he fights for this hour-plus on a mountain alone, single-handedly against two dozen hardened Chechen Uzbek fighters who came there to kill Americans. I mean, they traveled through Pakistan just to get in a gunfight. And I can appreciate that. I traveled all the way around the world to get in gunfights myself, but this is their level of their commitment. Now, he— In the course of this time, he gets shot probably at least 10 times. He has survived hand-to-hand combat. We know this because the autopsy and the forensic pathology, all of his wounds are anti-mortem except for the final two. Mm -hmm. So contusions on his face, neck, and hands. I mean, this guy had been fighting. We've got this on, if you watch the YouTube video I created, the first ever Medal of Honor captured on video, I think is what it is. And people, if your listeners would check it out, I think they'll have an emotional response to this. But what makes him so courageous and literally qualified him for an independent second medal of honor, he only received one, was alone, freezing, in the process of dying, been shot and shrapnel wounds ten times, hand-to-hand combat. He hears another helicopter, the third helicopter, coming to this mountain. There's only one place it's going, and it's to the top of the mountain to retrieve the seals. No one knew John was up there alive except for another combat controller and some Delta Force guys who had heard him calling on the radio. He makes the decision to climb out of this bunker and aggressively attack the enemy in three directions to protect 18 men he never knew. And he literally got shot to death through the heart. Blood pressure dropped to zero, and he expired. And the last things that John Chapman would have seen as he closed his eyes was this helicopter controlling its crash onto the mountain as rangers and another combat controller and some other Air Force members... Poured out of the back would have been the last thing that he saw. Whether he what he felt and what he thought, I don't know. But I can say he made that decision to climb out of this bunker. It is the most courageous thing I've ever seen. Sometimes I break down when I talk about this. And I spent three years writing this book, and I've been with this material. I've went through that video a million times. I've seen it as early as 2010, and uh, it's still it just is so powerful. This commitment. But you know what I equate it to? There's another circumstance or an aspect of life for certain fortunate individuals that have such an absolute commitment to another it exceeds anything else we know and that's maternal love mothers will do anything to protect their children mm-hmm. they'll take on three big male attackers and mm-hmm. shred them
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. and it's a powerful force because and what those two things share in common, John Chapman and maternal love and and what John did is a statement of love people don't like to equate the term love with battlefields and gunfights, I use it a lot John loved these guys and these people so much and knew that he had to do this that he sacrificed himself on an altar of brotherhood but God. mothers do mothers will do anything they can lift a car
0: i want to ask you whether if you deprogram that love of the bro- of the brotherhood the willingness to die for your comrades do you also deprogram the ability to come back and recover. What I'm saying is it feels to me like there's two different impulses. The military like, enforces this unique bond and amazing brotherhood, and then it's gone it's like you know you can call your guy but you're not shoulder to shoulder with him in combat is that part of the reason why why we have such a high suicide rate when people are not in action
1: yes but wow the answer is yes that is one of the reasons why but it's also the strength of the power of this one of the reasons that the u.s military integrated racially before america really did in very real terms was Because we do break down your individuality. Mm -hmm. You're not black, you're not white. You're not this, you're not that. I don't care who you are, you're all scum. And you need to come (laughs) together and be unscum before I'll give you any respect. And it doesn't matter where rich, poor, Bronx, LA, Beverly Hills, Texas, who cares? I don't care. And I didn't care. I don't care where you come from. Can you do what you have to do? And, and that's a subordination is a positive mm-hmm. thing. People are like, oh my, you're part of this corporate military industrial complex. That's bullshit, man. This is a commitment to other people. Listen, the American military is a force for good, regardless of your politics. Somalia is Exhibit A, just to go back to my own example. We didn't go there for oil. We went there to stop starvation and and a t- form of tribal genocide. Mm -hmm. no foreign policy involvement for us any benefit to america but we went there to do that and when you go to foreign countries and i've been to some of the worst places in the world and you take a bag of food that says from USAID, from the american people Mm -hmm. this country does more for others around the world than any other country and i know we're off topic here but this is the reason that i fear for the future because what has kept the world in an ordered structure that Friend or foe, doesn't matter which side of any equation you're on, any equation, because everyone has a right to their own opinion. That architecture, the Marshall Plan after the Second World War, where America rebuilt our enemies' economies, mm-hmm. that program is called the Marshall Plan because it was designed by a military man, mm-hmm. General Marshall, <laughs> yeah. and it was a positive thing. No other country in the world would do that, regardless of your politics. I don't care about Democrats, or Republicans. I think that's all bullshit. Mm-hmm. I think the two-party system in this country is bullshit and the polarization and demonization of either side is bullshit mm-hmm. the w- number one threat to the exist- existentially to the world is a destabilized america because this is the most prominent power that does so much around the world good and bad warts and all but the biggest threat to america is a destabilized political system and that's the challenge in yeah, america that's and that's exactly all about where the we're at. It's a problem. I, sure
0: I, I want to... Um, I apologize for that thing. I, I oh, actually, no, please. I, I love it when people get on rants. That's the yeah. beauty, of, beauty of podcasting. I keep thinking, though, we have more people who are dying every day from suicide mm-hmm. than are dying on the battlefield. Yes. And so if you were going to change the structure to allow them both to be comrades who are going to do anything for their troop members, but also individuals who can survive the rigors of being home what would you do how would you change the system
1: you can't change you can provide leadership guidance in the form of open doors such a cliche but openness but the fact is it goes back to when we touched on this earlier in the show it's not about a programmatic anything one of, i had this question yesterday about how are we going to stop the tide of suicide i got to ask this by yeah. i had 100 people in a room and i said you know the best thing you can do as a leader or any individual, and your office, this is what you two do for a living, and is to leave your door open and leave white space on your calendar. You have to Mm -hmm. allow people to wander Mm -hmm. in. And you can't cheat. You just have to be in there doing nothing. You can't be doing performance reports or i got to do the spreadsheet Mm -hmm. or some other thing that you don't want to do anyway. You have to leave this open, and you have to be open because then you can be receptive to what might be happening and when someone comes into your space to talk to you. Or what I like to say, you know, I think it's David Packard, whatever, Hewlett and Packard. I mean, one of their their mottos or, or MOs they used was management by walking around. They just walked around the floor. What are you doing? I'm building this, this, and this. Mm. I didn't even know we built that, that way. And you learn these things. But what you can do to help with mental health is you can walk up. And if you're not thinking about sort of stuff and you're just being open, you don't have any agenda... So you're not, i got to talk to this or I need an answer to that. Just walk around and look at the people that are important to you or that you're responsible for if you're a leader. And I look at you, and I'm looking at you right now. Sheila, I think you're doing okay. You look pretty good. Brian, you're looking all right. Jenna, you look pretty good. Yep, everybody <laughs> looks calm. That's what I'm doing. I'm just assessing how, how are you yeah. feeling. Everybody's got calm energy in here. But
3: at the same time, and at the same time, being open means also being open to suffering, to being able to see oh, I think you're not okay. And like, I'm I'm a therapist. I'm a psychologist. And still, when I see one of my clients and I have a sense like, oh, you're not really telling me the whole story. I think you're suffering in a deeper way than you're telling me. Like, my urge is, oh, that scares me. I kind of don't want to go there. Um, You're okay, right? Isn't the same thing as, hey, are you okay? Those are two different things. And so we have to be open to, oh, you're actually not okay, even if that makes you feel helpless or you don't know how to respond or it makes you feel scared. like That's our job as leaders or mental health people or friends of people who are struggling.
1: And one of the things I pointed out yesterday, and I'm glad you just outlined it that way, Jenna, part of my answer to this young woman's question to me was one of the best ways I have found that you can do that is to offer or proffer the olive branch first yourself. Oh, just to yeah. say, mm-hmm. yes. You, yes. Know you know something? Yes. And the third thing is, I look at you and I say, you're not okay. And then to open that door, you say, you know what? I'm not okay yes. either. I have these right. challenges. And I, I've done this a lot with people. You know, Again, I've lost seven different, and many more people I've known, to suicide in the military, all right. of the military. And what I do now is I'll, reach people and, and physical contact helps. I know this is the era of you're not supposed to touch people and I don't think that's bullshit too. That's how you connect with people and if I'm yeah. earnestly trying to talk to you and I reach out and say you're, you're not okay and yeah. Yeah. let me tell you why I'm not okay and how I have suffered right? and, and without saying to you here's how you're suffering because then you're going to make them defensive or you might make them defensive or you might be wrong. I yes. say what I see in you is looks like you're not doing well but let me tell you how I have suffered and I can tell you man I for a long time I was afraid I was a sociopath Mm. because I had killed people and sometimes I didn't feel bad about it Mm. and I asked this question to a therapist one time and I said, you know, I'm worried I'm a sociopath. And they laughed and I went, okay, maybe that's a good sign. (laughs) And they said, sociopaths don't ask that question. (laughs) Okay. That's a
2: good sign. Don't worry that they're sociopaths. That's that's a good sign. not worried. You know, this business about like, are you okay? It's a perfectly good question. It may presuppose that okay is what we're supposed to usually be. Right. And and that's, I think, Mm -hmm. a mistake. It's uh, college football season. Uh, Side note, go Ducks. Um, But, you know, it's like, during the game, there's a difference between hurt and injured. Everybody's hurt. everybody every single mm-hmm. player is hurt. Nobody feels good getting hit, right? But can you still do what you're supposed to be doing out there, or do you need to come to the sideline? There's a difference between hurt and injured. After the game, I bet everybody, I mean, everybody the next day is getting ice baths. They're injured and they're and they're going to they're they're going they're getting ice baths, they're getting PT. Um, they're recovering from the, the bangs and the, all of that of the game. And this idea that it's like, you know, in the thick of it, I may need to push through some things, but there is a line where it's like, I mean, like you were saying, you go, you go, you go, but when you get shot, then you're like medic, (laughs) right? Um, but then afterwards Everybody's banged up, and it and it doesn't make any sense to take the pads off to switch metaphors here to go back to football. It doesn't make any sense to take the pads off and say, "No, I'm fine. I'm fine." It's like, no, we all we take a couple days of recovering, we watch some film, and we get ready for next week.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. I will also say, I mean, I'm completely worried when I look at the statistics about how many um, active duty people are on antidepressants and antipsychotics. Just the load seems untenable and incompatible with what you have to do every day when you're in the military. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean,
1: you know, medication is... is Pharmacology is what drives healthcare in this country, frankly speaking. It's business, and it's what drives our medical economy. And economies drive the treatment you can and cannot get. That's the facts, and you can't change that. And so we over-medicate. It's it's one of the challenges at the VA. And listen, I'm a fan of the VA. The VA gets a bad rap. I've met so many dedicated people at the VA who are there to help other people and veterans, these people who deserve all of America's gratitude. I don't care about your politics. And it gets a bad rap in the way, this may not play well, but the CIA and NSA get bad raps and they don't deserve those bad raps. Sometimes they have warts. Sometimes the VA has warts. Sometimes hospitals around here in Portland have warts. Right. The bottom line is we do have to avoid that because that is a bottomless pit. It's like being in a toxic relationship where the person is always needing more, and more, and more and you can dig that well all you want and there's no bottom to that thing. Medication is the same thing. I over I drank to try and save myself for a long time and where I can it's a drinking culture especially in special operations we drink a lot. Yeah. That was how we would compensate. And then I what did I do from there? I transitioned to the most extreme sport on the world. So much so that I have the world record for most base jumps in 24 hours. Like that's an extreme outside what is normal parameters way of coping. Now it worked for me and fortunately I'm not dead now I've transitioned past that time has passed and that's how you recover is it takes time. Time. There's zero shortcuts. And the medication to me is not only not a shortcut, it's a false start or a dead end because Mm -hmm. it will not lead to your ultimate health. And it's not like you were saying, Brian, it's not like, okay, well we're well, or what was the word you used? my memory, I've been like we're fine, fine. Like, fine. fine, fine is not yeah. fine is not are what okay? we're trying to get. You're not okay because life is yeah. lived in the seams, and there's always going to be yeah. pressure, and there's always a fight with a child or a spouse or yeah. a parent, or my boss sucks because let's face it, sometimes bosses suck, and so <laughs> that never goes away, and so it's not going for Norm, but what is compounding the problem for veterans, back to your point, Sheila, is over medication, which is our structure for healthcare in this country, is these this particularly vulnerable and susceptible population collective are being thwarted from recovering because of this medication and it leads to suicide combined and yeah. compounded by loss of identity combat addiction and I don't mean to go on but I am uh, is is a real problem in this longest-running war in black special operations not white special ops but the black stuff the John Chapman's unit, at the 24th Special Tactics Squadron, which is equal in every way to Delta Force or SEAL Team 6. In those communities, the people who are executing those missions tonight, they're getting ready to go out right now, probably in about four hours. I have more combat experience than any generation of Americans ever. Ever. Wow. The Civil War, World War II, they have more combat time, and combat addiction becomes the reality. I like combat, man. I get it on. It's a very real experience. And I feel like I'm making, I'm part of this bigger thing and I'm making a difference and I'm, in, I'm commanding this environment. We always win our gunfights. No one fights better than American Special Operations Forces. And then when you come home, guess what? The family is not the reality.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That's not, I need to get back to the war. Yeah. I have guys who have told me, hey, Dano, I, I'm going over to this unit because I haven't killed enough guys yet. That's a statement. Wow. Now this is lawful, bad guys. But man, this is what he thinks his mission is. And it's not Christian crusaderism. It's these people are a threat. They are oppressing others. I have to kill these people. That's the solution. It's like a surgeon. Every problem is an operation. Now, nah. what you need is foot surgery.
0: Wow, I could talk to you for, like, another two hours. you got to go on another flight together. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure we're going to take some runs at Alta Sunday. I want to remind people that if you want to see some of the videos that we've been talking about, danshillingbooks.com. Yep. It's such a pleasure. Really incredible to speak with you. And thanks for bringing your whole heart, body, experience, mind to this interview. Thanks very much for coming in, Dan. Really appreciate it.